This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Never Trumper Bill Kristol, former editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, recently warned gleeful leftists against complacency over the polls that show a Joe Biden win in November. Kristol tweeted out, Trump's path to victory doesn't depend on persuading Americans. It depends on voter suppression, mass disinformation, foreign interference, and unabashed use of executive branch power to shape events and perceptions this fall. In other words, President Trump is the real dirty dog, not the left, not Joe Biden representing the party of voter fraud and attempted coups, fake dossiers, riots, and all the rest. What is it with these never-Trumpers? A lot of us have been asking that question of these Republicans who show way more disdain for Donald Trump than they ever seem to have done for anybody on the left. But for all their anti-Trump bravado, do the never-Trumpers have anything to show for their efforts other than proving why they should never hold prominent positions in the GOP again? We're going to talk about it all right now with Julie Kelly. She is senior contributor to America greatness and former political consultant. She's out with a great new book we're going to talk about. It's called Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Janet, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate this. I know you used to like Bill Kristol at one time, I understand. Is that right? I did. In fact, I wrote a phony, uh, a fake breakup letter with him in the early 2017 after he became so unhinged about Donald Trump yeah. because I was a big fan of Bill Crystal for years. I subscribed to the Weekly Standard and I watched you know, him on ABC News. He Anywhere he was a contributor uh, or a commentator, I, I followed him because I really thought he was a smart guy and helped move the Republican Party along after the Clintons won uh, in 1992. And so I was really shocked at his transformation. Um, he looks even crazier now than he did back then. Yeah, he sure does. But I mean, this is a guy who served in the Reagan administration, the George H.W. Bush administration. A lot of people like you thought that Bill Crystal was a reliable, if not total, real strong conservative, at least a neoconservative that was OK on a number of issues. Where did he begin to go off the rails? When you, you look at his trajectory, what happened to him? I think what happened, Janet, early on, Bill Crystal like a lot of commentators and pundits, did not think that Donald Trump would win the primary. He did not think that then he would win the general election. So he was an early investor in the anti-Trump movement from the right. And as Trump continued to win and prove Bill Kristol wrong, because Bill Kristol is well known in Washington as being wrong about almost everything, like he's kind of a cautionary tale. (laughs) Um, And so he just was so invested in it early on that he had to stick with it. Then what happened is he, after the Weekly Standard was shut down at the end of 2018, um, he had to look for other sources and other venues for to vent his Trump hate. 
So he has been accepting millions of dollars from a left-wing billionaire, Piero Midiar, who was the founder of eBay and also an anti-Trumper. So Bill Crystal and a lot of his never-Trumpers uh, are taking millions of dollars every year from left-leaning uh, anti-Trumpers to pretend that they are the internal resistance conservative Republican against Donald Trump. So it's really a big fraud scheme, and I detail that in my book. Well, it is a big fraud scheme because a lot of these guys, I think of some of the National Review types, and they came out with that famous against Trump issue, and many people were shocked to see some of the names that contributed to that particular issue. But you look at people like David French, for example, from National Review, no longer of National Review, and he was one of the people who was saying, oh, you know, we have to be about morals and we have to be about standards, and Donald Trump is this thrice-married guy, and he's got terrible standards. But it became harder, I think, once Trump was in office for a lot of those guys to maintain their continuing objections when you saw President Trump, for example, being so strong on the life issue, on the religious freedom issue, some of these issues that these guys claimed to support. So what do you make of how they've tried to balance their criticisms with with some of the stuff that should be a little bit embarrassing for them now? Well, they should definitely be embarrassed, and I'm glad you brought up David French because I cover him a lot in my book. And as you know, his shtick for the last few years is shaming evangelicals, millions of Christians for their continued support of the president. And really, what I call religious bigotry, it would not be allowed to say the things that David French has said about faithful Christians and their who they support politically wouldn't be tolerated for any other religious group. True. Um, but of course, when it comes to Christians, there's always an exception. Yeah. And right. so, right. And so they, I talk about a lot of what David French and a lot of them have written about, uh, you know, true. Uh, of evangelicals and Christians of, of any denomination for supporting Donald Trump. And, um, you know, like I said, they're, they just were in on this early. And a lot of them, now David French is a good example. Who heard of David French three or four years ago? <laughs> right. No one. Exactly. So this this is how they get fame and, and money by pretending to be these conservatives who oppose the president. This is their whole shtick. It's their livelihood. So they are really... I've said repeatedly, I will take people on the left over the never Trump right any day because you know what you expect from the left. Yeah. The right, this never Trump right is so dishonest. They're so fraudulent and they're, they've really been a destructive force in the Trump era. Do you think, Julie, that there is a uniting force that makes all of these people or made all of these people come out against Trump early? Is it the fact that they wanted to get fame? They wanted to get more money? I mean, because you have had some on the never Trump right walk it back and say, I was against Trump, but I'm for him now. Well, Rich Lowry at National Review is a good example of this, right? So this is the publication, the outlet that really launched the Never Trump movement. Um, And you have several of the people who contributed to that issue um, who have turned around and supported the president. Rich Lowry, I wouldn't call him a Trump supporter, but he's he's more of a fair-minded skeptic. I still don't agree with a lot of the things that he says about the political climate right now. Um, but he wrote a book about what nationalism and why it's an important influencing factor in politics right now. So he's come around. Um, the rest of them, it's as I said, it's just their shtick. They're getting funded by um, 
leftists, really, to promote this. The problem is, Janet, they don't represent the Republican Party or conservative movement at all. Right. You know, they go to the pages of the Washington Post or New York Times, or they're on CNN and MSNBC to provide, to give this phony idea that there's large swaths of Republicans and conservatives who oppose the president, which simply isn't true. I mean, all the polling still has him around 90 percent support the president, 90 percent of Republicans. Um, So they're just useful idiots. It's one of the chapters in my book. (laughs) Yes, that's what they are. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, and you know what's funny about this is you take David French for an example. I'll go back to him for a second. And Russell Moore, who was also on board with the Never Trump movement from the beginning in the pages of National Review. Even when you had 81% of evangelicals voting for Trump, they still saw themselves as the bold leaders. And I wonder at what point any of these guys begin to say, you know, maybe maybe I took the, a wrong turn, but they won't concede. At least you have some of these other guys who are conceding. You know, I would say Brent Bozella to some extent has conceded. Eric Erickson, Glenn Beck, people like that have kind of walked it back a bit, recognizing the reality on the ground. But what is it with these guys who just will not move? Is it just pride, in your opinion, that causes them to hang on to it long after it served its purpose? I think pride is part of it. I also think, Janet, part of it is redemption for the Iraq war. And mm. I talk about that in my book. Yeah. Uh, one type, one chapter is weapons of mass collusion. So we had the same neocons, Bill Crystal, David Fromm, who were all in on misleading the American people about the existence of weapons of mass destruction, which we found out a year or two later was not true. But they stayed with that for years, right? They still refuse to apologize and can see that a massive mistake was made. They were the same people, and this is important, who were in on the Russian collusion hoax from the start. That is very important. I want to pick up on that after this break. Julie Kelly with us. Her book is Disloyal Opposition. We'll be coming right back on Janet Meffer today after this. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. 
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Julie Kelly. It's just such a good book. She's senior contributor to American Greatness and her book is called Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. These are useful idiots for the left. I heartily concur with you on that, Julie. And you mentioned that some of these never Trumpers were very, you know, upset about the Iraq war issue. Some of these neocons and themselves were in on the Russian collusion hoax and pushing that. Talk about that for a few minutes, because that really is true. And I wonder how many conservatives really notice that. So as I outline in my book, the Russia collusion hoax, the initial seeding of this collusion narrative began in conservative media. It began at the Washington Free Beacon. National Review wrote articles about it, the Weekly Standard and Bill Kristol. So they were all in on promoting this phony idea that the Trump campaign and the president, well, the candidate himself, uh, were colluding with the Kremlin to influence the outcome of the election. Hmm. And they were major peddlers of the Russian collusion hoax. They helped to ensure the appointment of Robert Mueller as a special counsel. They ran ads making sure that Republican senators protected the Mueller probe. So they were really invested uh, in promoting what we now know is one of the biggest, biggest hoaxes of all time, intended to cover up the biggest political scandal of all time, which is how the Obama administration weaponized the Department of Justice, FBI, CIA to take out their political rival. Um, And, you know, this is the other frustrating thing, Janet, is that these never Trumpers refused to acknowledge what Barack Obama and his Justice Department did and their holdovers tried to do to the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency. Um, There's nothing conservative about defending abuse of power by our most powerful law enforcement agencies. Very well said. And this gets to another point that I know you address in the book is they they claim to be orthodox conservatives. But for example, to name another person who's been a big time never Trumper, Jennifer Rubin at The Washington Post. Mm -hmm. Nobody, I think, can say with a straight face that this woman is a strong conservative. So, you know, among these never Trumpers, how many really are those you could put in a category of orthodox conservatives anymore? None. (laughs) Okay, that's simple then. (laughs) It is. And I go through my book how they've pivoted. Jennifer Rubin is the prime example. Max Boot is another. They both are at the Washington Post. And I go through positions they had as late as 2015 and how a year or two later they were completely pivoting 
on what their previously held positions were. Hmm. You know, these are people who have come out to get rid of the Second Amendment. They've changed their minds completely on climate change, on even pro-life issues, on immigration, on tax reform. You go down the list, every position they claim to have had before, they've pivoted. Bill Crystal had that famous tweet, you know, the tax bill's bringing out my inner socialist, yeah. you know, the Kavanaugh. He, he basically admitted that he was outing himself to, as a lefty. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, no, I don't think any of them could be categorized as conservative or anything close. No, I agree with you. W- what about the mockery of the Gorsuch appointment? I thought that that was a really good section that you were talking about when Gorsuch came along and, and there had been this argument, still is, uh, about judges. And this is part of the reason we wanted to elect Trump is because we want to get conser- more conservative judges on the bench across, you know, across America, all different kinds of courts. What about this but Gorsuch jibe that they kind of trafficked around? Oh, but Gorsuch, but Gorsuch. I mean, why in the world did they do that, do you think? Well, because the appointment of Gorsuch signaled that he was going to govern more conservatively than a lot of the never Trumpers at first were skeptical about. So I think a lot of his early moves in that was, one, fulfilling that commitment that he would appoint a pretty much conservative jurists to the Supreme Court undermined their original argument, which was that Trump was not a proven conservative, which was true. Mm-hmm. There was reason to be skeptical about Donald Trump, no doubt about it. Yeah. So anytime he would tweet something that wasn't didn't meet their high standards or he made some gaffe in front of the news media, they would taunt conservatives with this but Gorsuch mean, yeah. meaning you traded off the decency of the White House to get a cheap Supreme Court seat, which, you know, in the final months, I mean, if Judge Scalia had not died in 26, early 2016, would Donald Trump have won? I think no, because that yeah. was such a rallying cry for conservatives wanting to make sure that that seat went back to a conservative that Hillary Clinton didn't replace him with a liberal. Yeah, and so it's just more mockery. Look, Janet, the point two of my book is a lot of this is directed at Trump, but it's also been directed at Trump supporters. So it's not just Trump that they hate; it's us. Yes. They really hate. Yes, yes. They expose themselves as not just really liberals, but elitists who have such contempt for most Americans. Um, and so that's been the biggest revelation, I think, of following that movement. Yeah, and you have a lot of those people that they've been very disdainful toward listed, you know, Fox News and evangelicals, Devin Nunez, people like that, that they just don't give them an inch. And and to me, when they do that, all it does is strip them of any credibility they once claimed about having the higher ground. These are some of the nastiest, most petty, insulting elitists I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I kind of go back to what I think you said a few minutes ago, which was, you know, I'd rather have an a a real liberal, a real far leftist who's just plain honest about what he's about than these guys. These guys are just posers. That's the perfect word, is posers. That's exactly what they are. Um, And why I call it disloyal opposition is because they really have betrayed millions of conservatives and Republicans like me, right? We were the ones who subscribed to National Review and Weekly Standard. We contributed and voted for Mitt Romney and John (sighs) McCain, two of the biggest never-Trumpers. I mean, what an insult to the tens of millions of Republicans who voted for both of them, to John McCain, his first 
before he passed away, the first two years of Trump's presidency, did everything he could to sabotage Trump. And then he was quickly replaced with Mitt Romney doing the same thing. What a betrayal to all of us who've supported them, who've, you know, listened to them, follow our country, put our country at war, declare war and believe that what they were saying and jeopardize our national security as they were nation building overseas while ignoring nation building here at home. So we just feel betrayed. I think I try to give voice in my book to so many of us who feel betrayed by these once conservative Republican leaders and influencers. Totally. I feel exactly the same way. I mean, here's Mitt Romney marching with Black Lives Matter. I mean, you might as well just spit at the, at the conservatives while you're at it. I mean, it, it, they, they're not even ashamed of it anymore. They're flaunting it. They're just proud of it. And I don't know what they gain from it other than getting the respect of the left. But, you know, they're taking all this leftist money. Why don't they just go to the Democrat Party? That's where they belong anyway. Well, that's a great point. Why didn't Mitt Romney run as a Democrat in Utah? Why did he run as a Republican? He has opposed every Republican measure. He opposed the president's um, emergency order on immigration. He, of course, is the first senator of a political party to vote to convict a president of the same political party. So he'll be in the history books as that. Um, he's, uh, he's one of the biggest frauds of all. Um, but unfortunately, we're stuck with him for the. Here's the thing, though, Janet. Let's say Donald Trump does not win re-election in November. Where do these never Trumpers go? Hmm. What does Mitt Romney do to get attention? They will go back to calling Mitt Romney a racist, a sexist, a white supremacist. Everything that they said about him in 2012, everything that they said about his supporters like us, they're they're only going to be useful for so long. And if Donald Trump loses... You know, their usefulness is, is basically over and they'll be back to being the enemy that they once were. I agree with you. What do you think is the main reason, if you can boil it down to one in particular, I know there are many reasons, that the, the never Trumpers have failed to take down the president? Who gets the credit for their failure, would you say? Um, I would say the president. I mean, he he has not capitulated the way that I think almost anybody else he ran against in 2016 would have. Yes. So he, you know, he fought back against collusion. He was rightfully critical of the Robert Mueller probe. He stuck with Brett Kavanaugh when most of us know a Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio would have bailed. Um, You know, he is taking on now the tech companies. He's a lot of Americans just view him as a bulwark between us and the left. And so trust me, these never Trumpers never thought in a million years that not only would he have survived his first year, his first term, and still before this recent crisis unfolded or two crises, uh, was well on his way almost to a landslide re-election before coronavirus and now the, the race war. Right. Um, so he still has time to regroup, but none of them thought that they would that he would be where he is now. I think that's a correct assessment. So when you're looking at the future of the GOP, already there are a lot of Republican voters who have said, what happens to the GOP when Donald Trump is no longer there because he broke all the barriers for somebody to get into the White House? He was an outsider, didn't have any previous political experience, yada, yada, yada. What happens to the GOP? Do we go back to the Romneys and the McCains or do you think the base will forever reject them after the Never Trump movement? 
I think the base will forever reject them. Yes, and and they need to. And I think that the only upside of what's happening now, this turmoil and destruction and division, is that the left has been fully exposed for who they are, where they are. We know that we can't trust anyone in any really position of power, from corporate boardrooms to national news media and certainly academia and Hollywood. So we know now what we're up against. And there's not going to be a common ground Republican uh, whether it's even Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio, whoever it is in 2024, who's going to try to convince us that there's any common ground with the left. The yeah. only thing to do is to keep trying to fight back and, and beat them if that's at all possible. I think that's great. And what a great book. It's called Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President by Julie Kelly. Julie, it was so great to talk to you. Thanks for your great book and thanks for being here. Oh, I so appreciate it, Janet. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for joining us and God bless. We'll be back after this. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Now that the individual mandate provision in Obamacare has been terminated, President Trump's administration has asked the Supreme Court to strike down Obamacare so that it can be replaced with a far better and much less expensive alternative, in the words of the president. Will it happen, though? And how many Americans know that there is already an alternative to Obamacare? We're going to talk about that now with Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, so good to have you back with us. How are you? So good to be here. I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, that's wonderful. What are your thoughts on President Trump's call? What do you think about this? Well, we've been languishing with a lot of over-regulation and a lot of, uh, of red tape when it comes to health care. And, you know, it would be nice to see people who are freer in health care. But frankly, as a health care sharing ministry, we look at that and just say, I'm glad we're a part of health care sharing, that we don't have to deal yeah. with these kinds of things. Uh, it, it really is uh, tough to make decisions on your life when you need the president or an act of Congress uh, to make a move. So, uh, you know, all, all well and good. Want to make sure that people have those freedoms. But thankfully, we haven't had to deal with that. Well, that's right. And, and since the Affordable Care Act was passed, health care sharing was protected. Tell people a little bit about what health care sharing is, because for many people, this may be a new concept. Sure. Healthcare sharing is nothing more than individuals who are private pay patients who are sharing medical bills with one another. I actually uh, uh, compare it to going to church on Sunday, standing up and saying, hey, everybody, I broke my arm. Here's the medical bill. And then people just come up and give you money. That's basically what we've done. We've just systematized it, put some efficiencies behind it, made sure that uh, the bills are actually uh, able to be paid. 
and put a whole system together where individuals are sharing in those medical expenses. It's not insurance, uh, and it's not uh, a third-party government system. It really is person-to-person, member-to-member cost-sharing. What would you say are some of the greatest advantages of healthcare sharing over the third-party payer system of insurance that so many people are used to? Well, I would say, number one, it gives you back a level of freedom that you can't have any other way. Picking your doctor or hospital, uh, working with that doctor or hospital on things that you uh, might deem to be medically necessary, uh, having that freedom of choice to uh, get a second opinion, and really being put back in charge of your health care. What so many people don't understand is that with the third-party payment system, you are being dictated to when it comes to your health care. But if you remember, going to the doctor or hospital, you are the employer <laughs> of yeah. your health care system. Yeah. You're paying them. You should be able to make the decisions. And thankfully, with Liberty HealthShare, we've put that back in your hands. You've got the power of the purse strings again. So that's number one. But number two, you're a part of a community that really supports you in your time of need. They're the ones, the entire Liberty HealthShare community, they're the ones that are actually giving you back that power. So we're supporting you with a community and giving you the type of freedom that you want guided and managed and directed by certainly common-held beliefs and, uh, and having a whole entire structure that changes the entire game when it comes to health care. Very good. So if somebody goes, for example, for an operation in a hospital and has to deal with all of the various expenses, how does that work as a private pay uh, patient who's going to be using Liberty HealthShare uh, for the expenses to be paid? Well, when you go to the doctor or hospital, you just share with them your Liberty HealthShare membership card. It really directs the doctor or hospital where to send those bills. Liberty HealthShare processes them on your behalf, negotiates them if need be, goes through a whole process to make sure those payments are fair and reasonable. And all the while, we want you to focus on being the best healthcare consumer possible. You know, whenever you're in the doctor's office, you want to make sure that you're asking the right questions. You know, is this the right prescription? Should we be doing the surgery at a surgery center rather than a hospital? Uh, should Is there something that we can delay if need be? You know, making sure that you are taking charge of your health care decisions and letting the community worry about those medical bills. So it's a very simple, very easy process, uh, and it really does put you back into the driver's seat. Well, it does. And I know there are also lots of questions sometimes about deductibles and co-pays. How do those sorts of expenses uh, work under Liberty HealthShare system? Well, whenever you're a part of Liberty HealthShare, every single month you have what's called an, a, a share amount. That share amount is directed by Liberty HealthShare to another member who has a need. And likewise, whenever you have those needs, Liberty HealthShare directs those share amounts to you as the individual. And whenever you actually have those medical expenses, that's when we have what we call our annual unshared amount. It's the amount of money that you pay to your doctor or hospital before sharing actually begins. So that's our annual unshared amount. And every single month you pay your shared amount. And it's very, uh, very easy, very simple to go through. And we do it, frankly, all online with our system called ShareBox. So it's not really backbreaking. There's not having, you don't have to go through these big administrative processes or burdens to try and figure out how to take care of these things. Very simple, very easy. 
Well, that's nice. Simple and easy is music to a lot of people's ears after leaving the insurance world, <laughs> for sure. But you know, one of the advantages, I know we've talked about this before, Matt, is how members are able to, interna- to interact with each other. And that is a really unique feature of Liberty HealthShare. How, how is that the case? How do members actually interact with one another when they don't know each other necessarily? <laughs> well, because we are a faith-based healthcare sharing nonprofit, a big portion of what we feel is necessary within this community is that spiritual aspect of, uh, of health care sharing. So every single month when you send off your share amount, you send a note of encouragement letting people know that you're there for them. People can send in their prayer requests uh, within our, our system called Sharebox as well. So it really is a community that is really working together to make sure that you're healed not only physically but spiritually and have that interaction with people uh, that we tend to lose whenever we're dealing with healthcare on our own. So no longer are you uh, a part of a bureaucratic system feeling like a number, not able to talk to anybody. Now you have the community behind you. You can work with one another. You can talk to one another through our prayer box. And you have the power and control back again. So you're not just a number. You're the one making the shots. So it really does change the whole idea and concept of healthcare on its head and really puts it back where it should be. Very good. You know, something else that's come up in the news, and I wanted to ask you about where this stands right now. The IRS, I know, had issued a proposed rule that would allow employers to reimburse employees for fees for things like direct primary care and healthcare sharing ministries through this health reimbursement arrangement. Can you tell us where that might stand or what your thoughts are about that proposed rule? Absolutely. We've actually been following that very closely. I would (laughs) imagine. (laughs) We want to know how those things can actually help uh, individuals. And by our guess and how the final proposed rules are going to be written down and the way that those go, uh, it really does add an extra level of of, uh, availability for employees and employers. Uh, There is a part of it, though, that you have to have a, uh, a compliant uh, third-party healthcare system, along with a healthcare sharing ministry. Uh, so the the availability of who might be able to go there and and utilize it might be somewhat small. Might not be the biggest splash that we might be looking for. But we're going to follow up on that very closely. And if there is a way to make sure that healthcare sharing ministry members have that that parity with other ways of paying for healthcare then we're going to try and use that for our members' best benefit. Well, that would be great because that would give the consumers more options at work then for what they decide to do to pay for their medical expenses. Absolutely. And frankly, because you're a Liberty HealthShare member and because you uh, might be working somewhere, uh, this really does give you a level of flexibility that you don't have in other uh, areas of the marketplace. The portability of Liberty Health Share, you know, if you were to take it to another state or another company, I had one gentleman tell me that he probably got the job because he was a little uh, a Liberty Health Share member because the, the employer didn't have to worry about health care for him. Mm. So really, it, it does change the, the, uh, the game a little bit with your employer because now you're showing yourself to be a responsible person who's taking care of those actions and not, uh, not, not having any problems with your health care. Very good. Well, check them out, libertyhealthshare.org. Matt Bellis with us from Liberty Health Share, a national nonprofit health care sharing ministry. Matt, it was so good to have you here. Thank you again for being with us. Glad to be here. Thanks, Janet. All right. God bless. LibertyHealthShare.org. Check it out and we'll be back.
This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. That's the theme of our new campaign. And our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles, both to new believers and to those who've been praying many years for their own Bible in countries like China, India, and Nepal. Imagine strengthening the faith of a new believer in China like Washi, a 30-year-old wife and mother of two who overcame illiteracy two years ago and is yearning to read her very own Bible. Or Jirish, an 80-year-old man in India who followed Hinduism for decades, but is now a new Christian determined to follow Jesus Christ. You can join the Janet Mefford listening family in sending a Bible for only $5 or $20 for $100. Call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Thank you for caring. The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound. And every day, preborn is on the front lines competing with Planned Parenthood for babies' lives. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. Planned Parenthood, who generated recently over $190 million in net revenue, violated the terms of the payroll protection plan by taking over $80 million of COVID relief funds. Meanwhile, Preborn has received no government funding, and many of our center's revenue is down. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, just call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 22 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I just have a question. Whatever happened to that pro-life court we were supposed to get? I'm still looking for it. And what is up with Chief Justice John Roberts? Every single time this guy has an opportunity to do the right thing, he does the wrong thing and sides with the liberals. I'm not saying he's never sided on the correct side of the aisle on constitutional matters, but lately he's been a disaster. He's been an absolute disaster. The most recent decision handed down yesterday was regarding this Louisiana pro-life law. This was passed in 2014. It required abortion providers to have hospital admitting privileges within 30 miles. And this is all about making sure that women who get botched abortions can actually have quick access to emergency care. Part of the problem has been over the years that women who are hemorrhaging or experiencing some kind of medical crisis after an abortion from some butcher who doesn't know what he's doing, uh, they have a hard time getting that emergency care because the doctor doesn't often have hospital admitting privileges. And so you have to call the ambulance, 911 is called, and then they try to cover it up because they don't want pro-lifers filming it. We've talked quite a bit about these cases over the years. So Louisiana passes this common sense law that says we should protect women, right? It's all about protecting women. So you should have the emergency care available this way do the most good in making sure that women can have quick access to care should they need it. And the Supreme Court said, nope, that's unconstitutional. They struck it down. They struck it down with Chief Justice John Roberts, the alleged conservative who also upheld Obamacare, joining the four liberals on the nation's highest court. This was a case called June Medical Services v. Russo. And the abortion activists, by the way, that's an important part of this piece because they, the plaintiffs, were abortion 
radicals. I mean, they're abortionists and abortion clinic owners. And these people say this is an undue burden on access to abortion. Well, first of all, put aside for for the sake of argument that they care about women, which we know they care about women's money. But how in the world do they have standing to even talk about a woman's right? I mean, it's one thing if a woman is there. It's another thing if you have people with a very clear financial interest in upholding abortion clinics and their practices as is making this case. So shouldn't that be addressed? Now, Justice Clarence Thomas had a wonderful dissent. You ought to read the whole thing. That guy is the best. If we had nine of him, it would be a different country. But he said in the beginning of his dissent, today, a majority of the court perpetuates its ill-founded abortion jurisprudence by enjoining a perfectly legitimate state law and doing so without jurisdiction. As is often the case with legal challenges to abortion regulations, this suit was brought by abortionists and abortion clinics. Their sole claim before this court is that Louisiana's law violates the purported substantive due process right of a woman to abort her unborn child. But they concede that this right does not belong to them. And they seek to vindicate no private rights of their own. Under a proper understanding of Article 3, these plaintiffs lack standing to invoke our jurisdiction. And he goes on to say, despite the fact that we granted Louisiana's petition specifically to address whether abortion providers can be presumed to have third party standing to challenge health and safety regulations on behalf of their patients, a majority of the court all but ignores the question. The plurality and the chief justice ultimately cast aside this jurisdictional barrier to conclude that Louisiana's law is unconstitutional under our precedence. There you go. It's about precedent. Well, you know, we have all kinds of precedents in the Supreme Court that subsequent decisions overturned. Namely, the one that most needs to be overturned, which is Roe, and we're awaiting that decision someday by the grace of God, that that horrendous unconstitutional decision will eventually be reversed. Probably not by this court, though. We've lost all hope with this court as as it stands at the moment. We'll see how things go down the road. But this court's hopeless with Roberts sitting there. He's like the new Anthony Kennedy. At any rate, it's disgusting. I mean, we, we have had other very, very bad decisions at the Supreme Court. And later on, years later, sometimes the Supreme Court corrects it. So if you're going on the, the precedent argument, that means the Supreme Court never should overturn anything because a previous court got something wrong. Here's something else Justice Thomas said. Even if the plaintiffs had standing, the court would still lack the authority to enjoin Louisiana's law, which represents a constitutionally valid exercise of the state's traditional police powers. The plurality and the chief justice claim that the court's judgment is dictated by our precedents. Uh, for the detailed reasons explained by Justice Alito, this is not true. But today's decision is wrong for a far simpler reason. The Constitution does not constrain the state's ability to regulate or even prohibit abortion. That's a really important point. This court created the right to abortion based on an amorphous, unwritten right to privacy, which it grounded in the legal fiction of substantive due process. As the origins of this jurisprudence readily demonstrate, the putative right to abortion is a creation that should be undone. Here, here, praise God for Justice Clarence Thomas. He's absolutely right. Now, here's something that's also relevant to this discussion. There was a reference to the other decision, a previous ruling that had taken place 
with Texas. Two major points at issue, as Life News points out. The first revolves around whether the Supreme Court should follow that previous ruling in the whole women's health decision where the abortion clinic sued to stop its admitting privileges law and won with the high court deciding that laws protecting women's health are an undue burden, supposedly. The Louisiana law has important differences, though. The Texas law required abortionists to have admitting privileges and required abortion clinics to meet the same standard as ambulatory surgical centers. But the Louisiana law didn't require clinics to meet the ambulatory center requirements. But that wasn't enough for this high court. Oh, boy, no, because it's about precedent. The court's opinion which was led by Justice Stephen Breyer, found that conditions on admitting privileges common to hospitals throughout the state have made and will continue to make it impossible for abortion providers to obtain conforming privileges for reasons that have nothing to do with the state's asserted interests in promoting women's health and safety. That's absolutely absurd. It's ridiculous when you combine it with the standing issue. Yeah, you wonder sometimes why, I I know that this sounds a little crazy, but I'll say it anyway, because this is how we're all talking. What good is a constitution if people just blow it off? Especially when you're talking about, oh, I don't know, senators, congressmen, sometimes presidents, and in this case, the Supreme Court. If, if the constitution doesn't matter and you're just going to kind of wing it and you're going to ignore what is clearly there and you're going to impose upon it what has never been there, why do you even have one if you're just going to ignore it? That's the problem is you can have the best law in the world and, and it's kind of like this Bostock decision that was handed down recently as well. The definition of sex is really plain in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It doesn't mean sexual orientation and it doesn't mean gender identity because those are fictitious categories. And if you had issued those categories to somebody in 1964, they would have said, huh? And then they would have thought you were crazy. Sexual orientation? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? But they don't have to follow what the you know, the actual wording says in the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964, why should they be bound by that? Because we have a brave new world now. It's 2020 and we can impose back on 1964 uh, federal civil rights law, whatever we want it to say now, because we're just so much more enlightened than they were back in 1964. We have rainbow flags now. So why does it matter? And I guess in the case of abortion, we also have a court that says doesn't really matter whether or not standing is, you know, the abortion clinics and the abortion um, doctors have standing in this case. It doesn't matter. And so, you know, it's very, very, very disconcerting and disappointing. Life News points out there's a serious concern that the abortion business, Hope Medical Group for Women, is operating out of its own profitable self-interest rather than the interest of women and whether only women who have had or might have abortions can sue is a related question. So should abortion clinics have standing to sue on behalf of their patients? Often it's abortion businesses that sue to overturn pro-life informed consent laws. And they're the ones who are suing to stop health and safety regulations. They're the ones who are suing over other laws to protect unborn babies from abortion. So the standing issue is actually quite significant. But I don't know where you go from here when you have a high court that just says we don't care. We don't really care. 
It's just crazy. And back in November, the Louisiana Department of Justice announced suspicions about alleged criminal activity that may have happened at the Hope Medical Group. It accused the abortion facility of hiding evidence of criminal and professional misconduct from the Supreme Court. And the state asked the Fifth Circuit to unseal documents in the closely watched case. Then a few weeks later, a Fifth Circuit ruling suggested one abortionist in the state may be performing abortions that lead to second trimester babies being born alive. So you could have another Gosnell on your hands. But who cares? Who cares? It's the U.S. Supreme Court and they know all and they, they, they will do what they think is best for the abortion industry. It is a disgrace, an absolute disgrace. But we must press on for the sake of those precious little preborn lives and pray that God grants us the victory sooner than later. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you by Bible League International. Help us send 1,200 Bibles to Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Thank you so much.